Welcome to Talking Feds Now, a special breaking news episode of Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together some of the best-known former Department of Justice officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. And today, Friday the 13th, at the Department of Justice, we have the breaking news that Well, we're not exactly sure that there is a big question mark at best looming over the proposed indictment and prosecution of Andrew McCabe, the former deputy director of the FBI, who has famously been vilified by the president of the United States in a series of tweets that have accused him of everything from being a liar to committing treason. We're going to be talking about what has happened in the McKay prosecution, which right now looks to be an embarrassing debacle within the department, and what might be happening next. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and also a Washington Post columnist. And I'm joined today by three veteran crackerjack prosecutors who have vantage points onto exactly what's happening in this unusual situation. First, we have Glenn Kirshner, a longtime assistant U.S. attorney in the very office where McCabe's prosecution is pending, the District of the District of Columbia. Glenn, welcome. Hey, Harry. How are you? I'm good. Do you know uh, the prosecutors who have been reported to be involved in the McCabe case? I do. There was a prosecutor formerly on the case. His name is David Kent. I know him. We had a a case in common back when I was an AUSA in D.C. J.P. Cooney is on the case presently. He came in after David left. J.P. was one of uh, the homicide prosecutors that I had in my homicide section when I was chief. So these are very good, honest, ethical, dedicated people who, you know, I will tell you, if they have heartburn with the righteousness of this investigation, I would expect them to speak up. All right. We're also joined by Mimi Roca, well known to listeners of Talking Feds, a longtime assistant at uh, the Southern District of New York, where she held multiple supervisory positions, and today a criminal justice fellow at Pace University. Welcome, Mimi. Thanks, Harry. And finally, Barb McQuaid, also a stalwart on Talking Feds, a longtime assistant and then the United States attorney in the Eastern District of Michigan. Look, let's dive in. There's a lot of experience between us, but this is a very unusual situation. Let me just start right there. How strange, if there is, if the grand jury, as has been reported but not confirmed, came back after a long absence yesterday, convened, was asked to indict Andrew McCabe and 12 out of 23 uh, sitting grand jurors did not do it. They re- they refused to do it. How unusual would that be uh, based on your sort of experience? Let's start with you, Barb. You In your many years as assistant and U.S. attorney, how often did that occur? Highly unusual, Harry. I recall it happening just one time. And even that one time, it was kind of an aberration. It was a brand new grand jury with a brand new AUSA federal prosecutor who didn't understand that they could rely on hearsay evidence in the grand jury. And then the very next day, they did return uh, 
a, a true bill, an indictment. So highly unusual, and I think not surprising in light of the fact that the standard of the grand jury is is probable cause, and a prosecutor typically does not bring an indictment unless he or she believes he can prove the case at trial beyond a reasonable doubt. So there'd have to be a very significant disconnect there. Yeah. I mean, just to underscore, the, you you, uh, you have 12 people saying it's, you know, probable cause, and uh, but that's going to be a proxy for unanimous 12 instead of the 23 of the grand jury convicting. Um, Mimi, how about, how about you? How often have you come across it? Yeah, in my 16 and a half years as a prosecutor in the Southern District, um, I think I saw it happen twice. And I don't remember the details, but it's extremely, extremely rare. And right away when it happened, I assume there was all kinds of scrambling and kind of an automatic crisis within the office. Yes. What do we do now? Oh, yeah. It uh, before the prosecutor even uh, you know got back to the office, I think word had gotten back to the office that this had happened and. Um, yeah, there was immediate scrambling. Um, you know, there might have been a few cases more than that where prosecutors thought that the grand jury wasn't going to vote in favor of the indictment, return a true bill, and they pulled the indictment. They they said, you know, we're not going to have it voted on uh, because they could see that the grand jury was really struggling with it. And then, you know, that happens sometimes. And then you go back and you, you try to strengthen your case um, and work on your investigation. So that that is a possible uh, development here as well. All right. And we know grand juries differ in different jurisdictions. I was in four offices. The only time it ever happened to me, uh, not to me, but I knew about it in the office was when I was in San Francisco and it was a sort of notorious prosecution that, you know, involved a uh, an artist. So you, you thought that might have had had something to do with it. Well, here, the District of Columbia is known for having a more liberal uh, grand jury and jury base than, say, the Eastern District of Virginia across the river. How often you were you were in the, that office many years, Glenn, how often did it happen there? I've seen it happen a little bit more frequently than Barb and Mimi, only because I think of our unique jurisdictional mandate in D.C., because we do all of the federal prosecutions and we do all of the local prosecutions in D.C., what people would ordinarily think of as state prosecutions. So, you know, and because in Superior Court, which is the local side of our practice, we bring anywhere between 12,000 and 20,000 prosecutions every year, depending on the year. We occasionally have a no bill. And where we see no bills, it's, it's when the, the prosecution is righteous. We believe we have the right person and we believe we have enough evidence to convict, but it's not overwhelming evidence. And then what you see is a, a case where you have maybe an unusually sympathetic defendant and a set of facts that sort of have some of the equities going the defendant's way. Just real quick, for example, we've had a a number of cases where hospital security guards would restrain a patient and they would do they would do it wrong they would do it contrary to procedures and protocols that they would were taught and the patient died and then we would investigate in the grand jury to see whether there would be homicide charges and even though we believed there was not only a crime committed but enough evidence to persuade both the grand jury and a trial jury we we thought we had a reasonable likelihood of success on the merits the equities were such that we couldn't convince enough grand jurors that it was uh, a case that ought to be 
indicted. So we lived with the grand jury's uh, decision. Contrary to the popular saying, we can't indict a ham sandwich if we're doing our job right. We can only indict a case that is adequately supported by the evidence. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times, as has everybody, we thought that a conviction was probable. The reason that comes up is you, we are ethically bound not to bring a case that we as to which we don't think conviction is probable. It's not enough. It's necessary, but not sufficient to think the defendant has done it and is guilty. But you have to look at your evidence. And if your evidence doesn't seem to make a conviction probable, you're not allowed to bring the case. Any other thoughts, Mimi, about, you know, what what might have turned the grand jury against the case here if indeed they returned just now a no bill? Well, I mean, I, I think you have to look at it in the context of some other things that we're, we're hearing about right now through reporting, um, you know, one of which is that at least one, you know, witness who testified before the grand jury basically said that they didn't uh, believe that McCabe had um, the intent to lie when, you know, which which is a, a key element of uh, this kind of charge. And that essentially, you know, because he was authorized to speak to the press in his role during the underlying acts, he, he wouldn't he wouldn't have had to lie about that when asked about it by DOJ investigators. And so he didn't have that intent, you know, putting aside sort of what i think about that. I mean, if you're a grand juror and you hear that from a witness, if that is in fact true that someone said that, that, that could put a damper on uh, the prosecutor's ability to get the case. And, you know, in general, I mean, I think uh, most grand jurors probably would have to live in a, a hole to, to not have heard the president's criticisms, very public criticisms of McCabe from day one, um, and calling for his prosecution in really sort of outrageous ways, which, you know, would give, I think, anyone pause about the motivation of this prosecution. So I, I think, you know, those things all could play a factor. Yeah. Now, so just to underscore, uh, he, he was legally authorized. We know that. And so he would say he didn't have a motive. It's not an element of the crime, but still not having a motive makes it seem less likely he would he would lie. But what about all this, you know, um, the uh, whole sort of fusillade of, of nasty tweets from the president? Would the grand jury have heard that, Barb? Is that something they would know just because they listened to the news outside? Or would that have been something that would have been part of the prosecutor's presentation? You know, I doubt it would be part of the prosecutor's presentation. I think it would be improper for them to consider that. But I wonder to what extent they're aware of it. It's been all over the news. It would be difficult to ignore. And so I don't know, and I don't know to what extent it has impacted the decision of the prosecutors here. You know, one thing that uh, I would hope that they have heard evidence of, if it were my case, I would present evidence of, is the fact that Andy McCabe actually recanted. And I, I don't know how much time had passed, but ultimately went back to the investigators and said, I think I made a mistake. Right. Two days. And got it yeah. wrong. You know, I'm not sure I agree with your and Mimi's assessment of the motive aspect of it, because I think that it's possible that even if he was authorized to direct Lisa Page to speak to the media, it's possible that his motive was something else, like his motive was um, to protect himself from embarrassment about 
um, you know, violating FBI policy about discussing an ongoing investigation. But I do think this aspect of recant you ordinarily when you're prosecuting a case of perjury or false statements, if the person recanted within the same interview, that is considered a defense. Now, he recanted sometime later, not in the same interview, but I think fairly shortly after uh, he made the statement. And so I would hope the grand jury heard about that. And it could be that that fact is what uh, has concerned them about uh, this intent to lie. Yeah, I think it was two days after after at least the second statement. But so, Glenn, to you, you know these guys. Is it is it fair to say that they w- the grand jury would have heard about these arguably exculpating facts, the recantation later, the absence of motive, but they wouldn't have heard about all the president's tweets unless they found out themselves? What do you think was in front of them? Yeah, I think that's that's a big ticket question because we have a, a policy that governs our grand jury practice whereby we're required to put significant Brady information before the grand jury. That is information that tends to exculpate or cut against the targets or the subject or the defendant's guilt. So I actually have a feeling, knowing our grand jury practice in D.C. the way I do, um, we grand jury cases exhaustively. And it may be that way in all U.S. attorneys' offices. Um, Barb and Mimi would, would know better than, than I. I only know what we do in D.C. And, you know, we grand jury every witness, sometimes twice. So, And we will put lots of information before the jury that we think is not particularly helpful or supportive of an indictment because we, we, we try to do that out of a sense of fairness to the target. So I have a feeling that the prosecutors erred on the side of putting more information before the grand jury that probably included some of the president's shenanigans, which, you know, it, they, they sure look like um, at a minimum overreach at a maximum a vindictive prosecution being orchestrated by the president through the attorney general and, you know, right down to the U.S. attorney's office in D.C. I have a feeling the jury had a lot of that kind of information before it, which could very well have led to a sort of grand jury nullification issue where they're like, listen, McCabe is generally a good good man who's put a lot of time into serving this country honorably. He may have engaged in some missteps that may have actually been criminal offenses, uh, some of the lies he told. But on balance, we do not feel like this warrants a, a criminal prosecution. That, that wouldn't surprise me if that ends up being their conclusion. And remember the timeline here. This is unusual. You normally give a full investigation to a grand jury and then ask them when, you know, you keep them there till you till you're ready to ask for an indictment here. They've been gone for a long time. So some of the details might have been distilled and also they might have been, you know, specifically following uh, some of the the, you know, what was national news about the way Trump was acting. So, Barb, you've been on you've been in charge uh, in, in situations all Although, you know, not as quite as embarrassing. What do you think it's like now for the U.S. attorney, Jesse Liu, or just within the office? Anybody, actually, what, you know, if they if a, if they gave a no uh, bill yesterday, what's happening inside the U.S. attorney's office for the District of Columbia, you know, this evening? Well, there is a provision of the Justice Manual. I didn't know this because we didn't have to encounter this problem when I was U.S. attorney, but it says that. If uh, you get a no true bill before you go back either to the same grand jury 
or a different grand jury and ask them for an indictment, the U.S. attorney herself has to approve that. Right. And so I think that the U.S. attorney should be asking herself some hard questions if that is what has happened here. And, you know, I think a couple of things to think about. Um, I heard Glenn mention the concept of vindictive prosecution. I don't know that that's a bar here. I think vindictive prosecution plays a role when someone is attempting to exercise a legal right and in retaliation uh, you – uh, prosecute them. I think we have a very mean-spirited president who uh, wants to uh, prosecute for political reasons. I'm not sure that's enough to bar it, but there is something else in the U.S. Attorney's Manual, not called the Justice Manual, you know that that we've all dealt with. One of the first questions that we've talked about is: Has a crime been committed, and do you believe you can prove it by admissible evidence to obtain and sustain a conviction? But then you're also supposed to think about: Is there a substantial federal interest here? And I suppose one could say that deterrence of others, especially by someone who has a leadership role in the FBI, is a substantial federal interest. But you're still not done. There's one last question you have to ask yourself before you bring a case, and that is, is there some other adequate legal remedy, like a civil case or an administrative decision? And in this instance, where he has been terminated and his pension has been taken from him, is that not an adequate remedy? By the way, I would say not typically. I would say invariably. I've looked. I can't. There, I don't think there's any case, at least that I'm aware of, where you know you you find lack of candor in an OIG report, and you're at, it actually leads to criminal charges. Usually, at worst, someone has to resign. Well, what about then? Okay, so Jesse Liu, it's now on her desk. We officially, but what about the whole dynamic between her and Maine Justice? McCabe's lawyers went to the deputy attorney general, uh, so this already went all the way up, and I'm sure Maine Justice is sensitive to it just because of the role of the president. What's your what's your sense, Glenn or Mimi, of kind of what's going on at Maine Justice, and if there's any kind of either kibitzing or actual conferring involving, you know, the 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 deputy or even Bill Barr. Well, I, I can jump in and say, yeah, at a minimum, there's probably departmental kibitzing. Um, I, you know, I served with Jesse both on the line when she was first in our office, and then she was the last of my, I think, 10 U.S. attorneys under whom I served. And, you know, she's a, a good, no-nonsense, straight shooter. However, and I know Barb said that the protocol is that now it gets kicked back to her in the event it was a no-bill, and she can decide whether it should be represented. But I think the kibitzing is probably um, going on fast and furious, and this is really more of a decision that's being made uh, at Maine Justice by Barr or the DAG um, rather than being made by Jesse. At, at least that's my suspicion. What do you think, Mimi? You agree? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I cannot imagine that, you know, the U.S. attorney at this point could or frankly would want to, uh, you know, make a move one way or the other without um, DOJ sort of at least signing on. And it's more likely that DOJ is, is actually going to be the one you know, making the decision. I mean, this at this point is sort of... Um, you know, a bag that the Department of Justice as a whole is going to have to carry, not just the U.S. Attorney's Office itself. 
Um, so, you know, if, if I were her, I would, I would, I would frankly want it to be known that they are the ones directing it if they are indeed doing that. And I think McCabe's lawyers, you know, did a really tactically smart move today by writing that letter and trying to flush out something that's really not a public process, the grand jury, um, and, and, you know, trying to force it more out in the open. I don't know whether they'll get an answer because, you know, what goes on in the grand jury is secret, but the fact that they're even raising these questions in the public, in the press, saying, hey, DOJ, we heard this happen. You know, what did happen and what grand jury are you trying to go to? Are you shopping for grand jury? That's that's really smart lawyering. Right. With with, you know, national news over their over their shoulder. And to your point, Mimi, you know, Jesse Liu and, and Glenn also has had about the worst 10 days of any U.S. attorney in, in memory. Greg Craig was her case, and he was acquitted. There was a, a, a mini black guy involving uh, hate cr- prosecution of hate crimes in her office, and now this. Let's just close for now, and there's no closing on this because we don't know exactly what's happening. But as things stand, and if it's a no bill, how big a black eye is this for the Department of uh, Justice and what sort of lasting impact? Um, what I, I'd like to hear everybody's thoughts about that, Barb. Well, I guess it depends on what ultimately gets publicly disclosed. Matters occurring before the grand jury are supposed to be secret, but I guess it does seem like uh, it's likely to come out if this happens. And maybe, you know, the grand jurors, maybe someone in the grand jury themselves will talk. I don't know. I do think it's a black eye because it's uh, in in many ways, it's the way, it's the reason we have a grand jury to serve as a buffer between the accused and the government when they think there is overreach. But boy, I never saw in my career anything I thought was overreach, which is why I guess we didn't have those no true bills. It's good to see that the system works. It's good to see that there is a check and Mm -hmm. balance um, on overreach by the executive branch. But um, I would be very sorry if it's come to that. Mimi? So, yeah, I, I mean, I again, like Barb, want to see what happened. But, but it seems to me that really no matter what happens here, whether they don't get a true bill or whether they, they do get the indictment returned, you know, this this is a stain on the Department of Justice because and, and it really goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about Trump and the very, you know, inflammatory statements that he made in the, in the press basically calling for um, McCabe's prosecution. So whether or not you think McCabe should be prosecuted, Trump tainted it from the beginning. Whether there's a, a defense of vindictive prosecution or not, in in the general public eye of having faith that the justice system is bringing cases for the right reasons, this is a huge stain, and that's going to be true. Whether, as Barb said, I'll be relieved if the system works, but you know, either way, it's it's the fact that the case is trying to be brought just makes. Once again, the Department of Justice looked like an arm of a very politically vindictive president. What do you think, Glenn? Yeah, I don't think I would call it a stain on the Department of Justice. But if the grand jurors no build this case, then I think it's a stain on Bill Barr and by extension, Donald Trump, not not the whole department. I think we we all know that there are 100,000 plus employees over there with their you know heads down and they're doing the people's work honestly and ethically every single day. And there is this rot at the top that hopefully is not making its way down and permeating the ranks. So I think it, it would be a stain on Bill Barr's decision and on Trump's heavy handedness in the way he just completely um, berated uh, McCabe in public. 
but you know, it, it also does seem like maybe the grand jurors are performing the checks and balances on governmental power that the Republicans in Congress steadfastly refuse to uh, to carry out. So I, I kind of agree with Barb that the system's working here. And, um, you know, I only wish that some in Congress would catch the checks and balances fever. Yeah. Um, so that really interesting. I think, well, I, I'm kind of putting in my uh, my lot with with Mimi, though, because I mean, this was so discouraging as a former prosecutor. We do know that. But people in general don't. And, and I just think it's bound to go down as a as being inseparable from the, you know, the whole uh, torrent of charges from Trump. And it'll look like the department as a whole, you know, to the root and branch, were kind of doing his bidding. We don't, we can't see it that way. It's almost inconceivable that it would, that the, that the infection would have gone to the line prosecutor level. But I think that's the, you know, part of the of the terrible impact of these two years of um, assaults on on the federal you know, justice system and all the institutions. I think it's a pretty big black eye because it's not simply like a true bill, like a, a, a no bill in a normal case or a no bill in a high profile case. It's going to be a no bill. Probably it'll depend, as Barb says, about what comes out, what grand jurors say what. But I think it'll be taken as a no bill based on. Um, supposition that this was, you know, a vindictive prosecution by no less than the president of the United States. And if that's true, if that's the kind of of legacy of this case, you know, that's something that really redounds to the detriment of all the hundred thousand you're talking about. And, you know, we're going to have to have some time to clear out the stalls after after Trump leaves. All right. This is a topic that's going to have dramatic developments over the next couple days. I'm sure, as Barb, Mimi, and Glenn all emphasize, there's a lot of scrambling going on at both the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia and Maine Justice uh, in conjunction, and the possibility that everyone in the department is aware of this being one of the, the bigger black eyes in many, many years. All right, we will leave it uh, there and with everyone else await the news of the next few days. Maybe it will prompt another Talking Feds now. But for now, we're signing off. Thank you very much to Mimi, Glenn, and Barb. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to this special episode of Talking Feds Now. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast or even tell a friend about us. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com where we have full episode transcripts. Thanks for tuning in on this Friday the 13th. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum. Thank you, as always, to Mr. Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his beautiful music. 
Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time. <laughs>